second and goal. Williams puts his head down. No signal yet. Now they do. It's a touchdown. Touchdown, Carolina. We got a point. And the Tar Heels are going to go for two in the lead with a minute 14 to go. Powell springing out. Gets hit. And does it get in. The ball is fumbled anyway, recovered by Clemson, but the Tigers remain in front with a minute 17 to go. Carolina's out of timeouts. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show, and I had a feeling when I knew we were in for one of these 14-week window seasons that there'd be a week like this. And granted, there was one game, if one particular play had gone a different way, we would look at this week completely differently. If North Carolina had managed to upset Clemson, we would have said, this is a wild and crazy week. It's oh, it's nuts. Instead, we were like, wow, there were a whole bunch of blowouts. Clemson almost lost but didn't lose. And it was just kind of blah. But I don't know if it was blah. I think it was kind of setting the table for what is to come because there's some big games next week. You can see down the road what's going to happen. And let's face it. Clemson did almost lose, and that was pretty crazy. To North Carolina, to a team that, at the beginning of the season, if you said, North Carolina will push Clemson to its absolute limit, everybody would have said, you are insane. But that happened today. So, without a lot of just earth-shattering stuff to react to, we're going to let you guys direct the show. We're going to let you choose the topics. We're doing a little segment we like to call Dear Andy Live on tape because you're asking the questions. I'm answering the questions, but this is pre-recorded, so it's not actually live, but it is still sort of live. So let's go to the question. we got some really good ones. This one comes from at Bama Bella, at Bella Bama 99. Okay. I want someone to explain why UNC couldn't handle going into overtime. The defense was doing well. Going for two felt like a cop out. Well, Bellabama 99, the reason you do that is because Clemson has much, much better players than North Carolina. And if you can boil it down into a one-play scenario where luck may come into the proceedings, where you, know, you just may have the perfect call on, where they might not get everybody onto the field, if you can do something like that, that gives you a much better chance if you are the physically inferior team. You do not want to to lengthen the game if you don't have the horses that the other team has. And North Carolina certainly doesn't have the horses Clemson has. Now, here's another part of that. The defense at the time for North Carolina was not exactly doing great. They were limping around. There were so many starters who were dinged up. Mac Brown did not want to make that game any longer than it had to be. They wanted to take one shot. If they got it, great. It would have been a lasting memory. One of the biggest wins in North Carolina history. But he also knew if they go to overtime, the chances of that would probably go down. So he goes for two. I have no problem with him going for two. I think it's the right call. I didn't like the play call. If you're going to run the option... I don't know that you do it against a team that is that fast to the perimeter. Uh, Sam Howell was doing a really good job finding guys open, making things happen. Maybe you put the ball in his hands, not as a runner, but as a thrower, and let him try to find something because that might have been a better call. I don't know. 
I still like the idea of going for two. They almost pulled it off, and I know almost doesn't count, but in this case, when you got a team that was just awful last year, had to change coaches, came into the season without a ton of expectations, I think this is a big confidence boost for them to be in the game with Clemson. You look at the rest of their schedule, look, they're going to be in most of those games. They can beat everybody on their schedule if they can play like this against Clemson. That's a big feather in North Carolina's cap, and I don't disagree with the idea of going for two. I mean, what, what if they'd made it? It would have been incredible. But yeah, the way Trevor Lawrence was playing, if you go to overtime, he's probably going to find a way to win the game. So I don't mind Mac Brown doing that at all. Next question from Peter. What kind of game are we going to get between Florida and Auburn next week? Well, we already know that's going to be the game day game. And excellent choice. This is a game Florida and Auburn used to play every year. They did this for decades. And then when the SEC went to divisions, originally there were two fixed divisional opponents until they expanded. Once they expanded, you, you couldn't do that anymore. And the teams you didn't play as the fixed cross-divisional opponent, you just didn't, just don't see very often. So Florida and Auburn were playing every year, I think up until 2001, and then it would be less frequently. And then when Texas A&M and Missouri came into the league, it was extremely infrequently. So, uh, you know, this game is going to be a big game anyway, but now you add the fact that they're both undefeated. They both look like they're coming around on offense it's going to be a fun one in the swamp, and and I would imagine probably the loudest the swamp has been in a long time for a game. I know the LSU game last year was pretty big. Uh, Tennessee in 2015 with the Will Greer pass to win it was big, but this one, I think, it, 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 people are going to be really pumped up for this, and uh, with good reason. You know, Florida's offense has looked quite a bit better since Kyle Trask took over for the injured Felipe Franks. We will see if that's a function of the defenses they were playing. They played Kentucky. They played Tennessee, and they played Towson since then. Uh, and obviously, Kyle Trask sliced and diced Towson today, uh, on Saturday, but, you know, that's Towson. He was great against Tennessee, but Tennessee was not getting a ton of pressure. Auburn is going to get pressure. Auburn's defense will be the best defense Florida has seen. It may be the best defense Florida sees all year. And it probably a debate between Auburn and Georgia on that front. So, can Florida continue to move the ball? I find it very hard to believe that they'll be able to run the ball against Auburn because they haven't run the ball well against anybody yet. Maybe they'll be able to throw it. We'll see. A lot of it will be up to Florida's defense to stop Auburn's offense because up until Saturday, we weren't real sure about Auburn's offense. You know, uh, Bo Nix led that great drive to win the game against Oregon, but they'd been pretty, you know, not that impressive for most of the season until this Mississippi State game. They looked unstoppable against Mississippi State. Uh, and I've always said that Gus Malzahn teams, they can't throw unless they can run. And when they can run, they can throw. Well, they could run against Mississippi State, and then they could throw. And Bo Nix was incredibly efficient in that game. And I was very impressed with just the way they got all over Mississippi State. And I, and I realize Mississippi State is not that great, but Auburn was brutally efficient. The defense was incredible. Uh, handed the ball to the offense. 
But the offense then turned that around and cashed it in. And I think that's the part that you were kind of waiting for because, you know, you watch that Auburn-Texas A&M game and you're thinking, okay, Auburn is dominating this game. And then you go back and look at the stats and you're like, huh, that offense really wasn't that great. It must have just been the defense dominating. And that's that's kind of what it was. So this offense will get a test against Florida's defense. Uh, John Grenard for Florida, he, he's the grad transfer from Louisville. He has been darn near unstoppable this season. And, and I mean, the Florida needed that. They needed another elite pass rusher. They lost, uh, you know, Jabari Zunig has been banged up. Ja'Kai Polite uh, is gone. They needed someone who could make a quarterback miserable, and they, they found that guy. So I am very curious to see which of these offenses shows up against probably the best defenses they've seen so far. Uh, if this is the offense for Auburn that was moving the ball so well tonight, I don't know what Florida is going to be able to do. God, Bo Nix was 16 of 21 for 335 yards and two touchdowns against Mississippi State. And then Auburn running the ball. It, it's interesting. They, they averaged 4.8 yards of carry. And obviously, you got to back out sacks from that. But it felt like a lot more than that. It felt like they were a little more versatile. I really like when they put Booby Whitlow in the Wildcat and they run the, the jet sweep to Anthony Schwartz. They, they've got a lot of stuff they can do from that offense. And it finally felt like they got a defense on its heels enough with the run game to have to deal have to move guys up into the box and then they could really punish them with the passing game so if Bo Nix is more comfortable than that that's going to be pretty pretty telling you'll know it against Florida's defense because if he can do this against Florida's defense he can do it against just about anybody if it's more like what we saw at the beginning of the season then this game might be a little more of a rock fight we will find out This one's from Chris. Is Justin Fuente done at Virginia Tech? I, I don't know if he's done. Whit Babcock, the AD there, is a pretty patient guy. He's a reasonable guy. It's hard to imagine him just dropping him right now. But 45-10 to 10 to Duke. And it was a hideous game for the Hokies. And you look at this team. At the end of last season, you had guys basically telling their teammates, hey, we're trying to lose this last game so we don't need to play in a bowl game. That is a horrible chemistry situation, horrible locker room situation. The coaches didn't have control of that. I thought, foolishly, that once they jettisoned the folks that were not happy, that all of a sudden things would magically get better. I was very wrong on that front. And just the way that this team has... I, they are not talented enough. They're not executing. Basically, everything you, you could find wrong, you could find wrong in that game against Duke the other night. And if they don't get better soon, I, I do worry about Justin Fuente because I, I he came in, they won the Coastal, they gave Clemson a game in the ACC championship game. You're thinking, all right, this is, this is good. This is because they were a little down at the end of the Frank Beamer era, but... Justin Fuente is going to get them back to where they should be, which is winning 9, 10 games a year, competing for ACC titles. But that's just not happening. They are at Miami on Saturday. That's two programs that badly need a win in ACC play. If Miami wins this game, I, I worry. Because then you've got North Carolina. Well, you've got Rhode Island. I, I'll, I'll give them Rhode Island. 
Then you got North Carolina, which almost beat Clemson, which has beaten Miami, which has beaten South Carolina. Then you're at Notre Dame. Then Wake Forest, which at this point is undefeated. It, it could get really ugly. And, and, of course, you get to the end of the season, and you've got that winning streak against Virginia, which dates back to 2004. But I don't know that they're going to be able to continue that winning streak. And Virginia lost to Notre Dame today, but looked pretty good for a half and has looked pretty good most of the season. So I, I am a little worried about Justin Fuente because it does not feel like it's getting any better. This question comes from Charlie, and it's not the Charlie that's being asked about. That would be really weird. Who is the next candidate for a football analyst position in Tuscaloosa? I think Charlie Strong has to be a top candidate. No, Charlie, the question asker did not is not Charlie Strong. He is not saying, hey, Nick Saban, please provide me a soft landing spot. But yes, if Charlie Strong wanted to go into what Mike Loxley calls the Nick Saban Witness Protection Program, it might be coming sooner rather than later. Uh, 48-21 loss to SMU on Saturday for USF. They've now been outscored 111 to 31 by their FBS opponents this season, and they've lost nine games in a row to FCS opponent, FBS opponents. Excuse me. Remember, they started off 7-0 last season, and then had just completely fallen off. They were great in Charlie Strong's first year. That was when they had Quentin Flowers. They played that epic game against UCF, but it just is not working. And I don't know how you pull out of this one. Uh, you know, I look at, at former USF coach Willie Taggart at Florida State, and you look at that game against NC State on Saturday night, and you say, okay, I see some actual tangible improvement here. Maybe there is hope. Watching USF play, you do not feel that. You do not get the feeling that around the corner are better days. So unless something drastic changes, I do think it may be – that they have to get rid of him or he decides that, listen, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not working, but it is looking pretty ugly there. And this one, I, I, I think maybe this is one where our friend got just lulled into a, a stupor by the games on Saturday and is just dreaming of something a little bit wilder. This is from at history of Matt. Dear Andy, does it feel like some crazy bleep is about to happen this year? Alabama's defense and running game aren't great. Kirby Smart only wants to play offense like it's 1986. Clemson is out of sorts. Ohio State won't play anyone until December. It feels like wackiness is on the way. What say you? History of Matt, I agree completely. Wackiness is on the way, but only because wackiness comes every college football season. This is, this is the time when we think, okay, everything is exactly as we expected. Not exactly as we expect in the preseason, but... Alabama's good. Clemson's good. Uh, Ohio State's good. Oklahoma's good. Georgia's good. Just like we thought. That's it. That's it. That's the only teams that have a chance to win the national title. But I'm telling you, there's going to be some weirdness on the way. Now, I disagree with you on Clemson being out of sorts. They seem to play a game like this every single year. You know, this was their their Pittsburgh game the year they won their first national title under Dabo. Or this was their Syracuse game the year they were the number one seed and lost to Alabama in the Sugar Bowl. Or this was their Syracuse game last year where they nearly lost at home. But I think they get through this. I think they deal with it and, and they move on. I, I don't know that anybody else on their schedule is capable of getting them. 
Ohio State not playing anyone until December. I disagree with that. They are playing Wisconsin. They have to play Penn State. They will play some people, and I do think they will be challenged eventually. They were certainly not challenged at Nebraska, but I think there are teams that have better athletes that will be capable of challenging Ohio State at least a little bit. Maybe. Hopefully. I don't know that I want every Ohio State game to be boring, but it is kind of wild watching them just buzzsaw everybody. Uh, Scott Frost said after the game that this is a better team than the one they played last year. I don't think that's shade at Urban Meyer. I think everybody knows last year's team was fairly dysfunctional, uh, especially on defense. This team is perfectly functional, uh, fully operational, as the empire would say. And it is, it is looking like the Death Star right now. But no, history of Matt, we are going to see some weird stuff happen, whether it is Alabama losing to somebody in the SEC West. I mean, I, I do agree with you that the defense is not as good as it has been. The thing is, Tua is Tua, and those receivers are awesome. So you may be able to score more on Alabama, but they can still score a lot more on you. So we'll see when they play LSU, when they play Auburn, how much that really matters. But it will get weird. Don't despair just because Saturday was a little bit tame. The weirdness is on its way, I promise. We go to Lincoln, Nebraska now where Mitch Sherman just watched a pretty epic beatdown. Ohio State crushes Nebraska and Mitch this was a big game for Nebraska college game days in town they they just unveiled what what is going to be their their new football complex they're going to spend over a hundred million dollars on this thing everybody's pumped up and then Ohio State comes in and lets the air I don't say let the air out of the balloon I did see some people actually held on to their balloons until Nebraska finally scored in the third quarter Several of the balloons, I, w I would say uh, several hundred of the balloons, which traditionally rise into the air after Nebraska's first touchdown, and, and that didn't come until the second half. It, it appeared that Nebraska was uh, headed toward getting shut out for the first time in, in many, many years. Um, but but many of the balloons went into the air after Master Teague scored to make it 24 to nothing, almost in a, um, a, uh, a sign of surrender from Nebraska fans in, in the second quarter. It was, it was an ugly night all around at Memorial Stadium. So contrast this with the one a few years ago when Ohio State went in there, and they were also fairly excited about that game. Ohio State was boat racing them, and the stands were basically empty going into the second half. Was it different tonight, or was it basically the same thing? Well, it was different in the sense that at that time, and you're talking about two years ago in 2017 when Ohio State came to Lincoln and beat Nebraska 56-14, the, the, uh, the dynamic of the game it was not much different. This was 38 nothing at halftime. Ohio State let its foot off the gas in, in the second half. It could have named its score tonight against Nebraska and, and was kind to the Huskers to score just 10 points in, in the second half. So the level of domination w was similar to what Nebraska fans saw two years ago. But at that time, they were saying goodbye to Mike Riley. It was the end of, of, of a painful three years. And, and despite everything that happened tonight, 
most Nebraska fans, at least heading into this game, felt very good about where their program was headed with Scott Frost just 16 games in, into his tenure. Now, uh, I think t- tonight's soured some feelings for sure uh, in the short term, but uh, you know, optimism still runs pretty high about Scott Frost. Well, that, that is my question. It is clearly harder than I think the fan base realized. To, to bring this program to where they want it to be. Is it harder than Scott Frost realized? That's a good question. I you know I would I would say he did not expect to lose a game forty eight to seven in year two. I, I don't think he expected to lose a game fifty six to ten as Nebraska did at Michigan four weeks into his first season. I, I think perhaps he underestimated a, a, a bit just how far behind the curve Nebraska was within the, the, the Big Ten power structure. He knew, and, and he talked about it quite a bit from the very beginning when he was brought on board in Lincoln in December of 2017, that this thing was going to be a rebuild for the long term, that they weren't looking for quick fixes. At the same time, he went out and recruited his quarterback, right away in that first class and said, we're going to build this thing around this guy. And they had Adrian Martinez, who turned into a star in his true freshman season a year ago at Nebraska. And the expectation coming into this year was that Martinez was was going to take them to to places, uh, to heights that were much greater than what Nebraska experienced a year ago. Um, the, The fact of the matter is, Five weeks into the season, Nebraska's playing worse than it was in the second half of last year when it won four of its final six and went to Columbus and played Ohio State, a wounded Ohio State team. But still, Ohio State uh, within five points, 36-31 in a loss that uh, a few mistakes here or there, Nebraska could have walked out a winner. Uh, that was that was far, far from the case here in year two with Martinez as a sophomore who, who, who struggled uh, badly from the start in this game, and is not having the sophomore year that 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 uh, Frost or or many expected from him this fall. How much of it was Adrian Martinez not playing well, and how much of it was Ohio State's defense physically overwhelming the the blockers and everybody else? Well, I think it's always a combination. Uh, but Martinez ha- has shown that he can be the kind of athlete to to overcome some of those deficiencies that are around him. He did it last year in Columbus. Uh, he did it, frankly, at, at Iowa a year ago. It's a different was a different level of physical domination against Iowa or physical superiority that Iowa had o- over Nebraska a year ago. They, they did it with uh, strength and depth and sheer force, where Ohio State of course, had an athletic advantage that was sizable over Nebraska. But in both of those cases, Martinez went a long way toward closing the gap. And Nebraska's two losses in its final six games a year ago were by five points in Columbus and then by three points on, on a, on a game-ending field goal at Iowa. So, um, you know, he, he himself, or, you know, with a few players around him, w- was able to, to bring Nebraska close in those games and, and that just you're not seeing anything like that this year you didn't see it in the second half at Colorado when Nebraska needed to make a play to keep its lead and, and, and maintain that game and, and walk away a winner in Boulder and what would have been a very big win for for Scott Frost program and you definitely 
didn't see it tonight. You know, there's people around him who struggled too. His blocking didn't hold up, but uh, he's got to be the guy who goes out there and makes plays for Nebraska. And it was quite the opposite as his three interceptions came on the first possession, the third possession, and the fourth possession for Nebraska offensively. So how critical are these next couple of weeks for Nebraska? They have Northwestern coming in, and Northwestern lost to Wisconsin on Saturday, but defensively played lights out. I mean, they did not let Wisconsin's offense do very much at all. Uh, it was Wisconsin's defense that, that did some scoring. They play at Minnesota after that. Those are two games that Nebraska can win, but they're also two games Nebraska can lose. Right, division games too. Um, and knowing that you have Wisconsin and Iowa still on the schedule after those games, I, I think it magnifies the importance of what's up for Nebraska. And you know, they, they, there's, there's going, there's bound to be some kind of a hangover after such uh, a beatdown that, that Nebraska suffered at home. And there was a, a huge, I think you know this, but there was a huge amount of, of buildup to the game this week. Not, not so much that Nebraska was going to come out and, and stamp itself as a as a national power again and, and, and defeat Ohio State on its on its home turf. It, it was that the the spotlight was here in Lincoln again for the first time in 12 years. College game day was back at Nebraska. I mean, this was a staple of the Nebraska program from the time that college game day became uh, such a big part of the sport all, all the way all the way through um, you know th- through 2007 when when uh, the, the show was last year for Nebraska's loss to to USC and and you know obviously it just it just didn't work out as as planned today so um, yeah I mean these next two games are are massive for Nebraska they're three and two um, they, you know they're in a fight for their for their postseason lives at this point with as I said with Wisconsin and Iowa still still to come on the schedule so they've got to at least split these next two games and and really to uh, you know to keep their chins up and 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 believe in themselves the way that this team did coming into the season you know I I think they they, they certainly want to win both of these games but uh so Mitch uh, I, I want to kind of turn away from Nebraska at this point because uh, I'm curious to get an outsider's perspective on Ohio State we had Bill Landis on uh, Friday who covers Ohio State for the athletic and he was talking about how it, it's hard for them who see them every day to to kind of gauge just how good they are because it, they weren't sure with the competition level, but you've seen Nebraska, you've seen some other teams play, you've seen a lot of good college football over the years in your career. What is this Ohio State team's level right now? You know, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think that there's a team that's playing better right now anywhere in the country. Uh, this was a night game, so I got to sit in the in the press box here and watch Alabama and watch Clemson play today. And, I mean, clearly uh, those teams are on the same level or, or even above Ohio State when it comes to the, to the, the talent, you know, across the field. Uh, but Ohio State is, is just executing um, – <laughs> close to perfection right now which is an amazing thing to consider when you when you you look and, and it's a first year head coach and you have a quarterback who's who's new in this system everything is is uh is really clicking for Ohio State right now and and you know I, I think some of that a lot of that has to do with the level of competition that the Buckeyes have faced so far but uh the weapons that you see I mean deep at running back they're deep at receiver um it's just uh NFL prospect after NFL prospect around that defense I I'm I'm 
um, really struck when I watch Ohio State at how much different this team is defensively than what we saw a year ago. It's 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 night and day. You know, clearly they have an, an incredible pass rusher and a guy who's just the. Um, the, the catalyst for everything up front with Chase Young, but you know he is far from the only guy on that defense. As, as impressive as as uh, Justin Fields is and J.K. Dobbins and Teague and the rest of those running backs, um, it's the defense for me that separates this Ohio State team right now from from really the way that that the other top teams nationally are, are playing five weeks into the year. Is that what Scott Frost means when he talks about how much better? This Ohio State team is than, than last year's because people are kind of grabbing onto that quote, which he said during the week and he said it again after the game. But it, it, kind of grabbing onto it as maybe throwing shade at Urban Meyer, but it does seem to me it, it is more the defense. That was pretty dysfunctional last year when they, they had hired Alex Grinch thinking that Greg Schiano was going to be gone and then Greg Schiano wasn't gone and they had to kind of make it work and it, right. and it didn't work. But how, how big of a difference was it? between the defense that Nebraska faced this year and the one they faced last year in Columbus? You know, the players who, who were out there today um, on offense for Nebraska said it was a night and day difference in, in what they saw. Um, and Nebraska got Ohio State at a very strange time a year ago. It was coming off that loss to Purdue, um, which was followed by a bye week, and then the Huskers went into Columbus with when, when Ohio State's uh, you know, mindset was was in a strange place. You had all kinds of talk at that point about Urban Meyer's future. Michigan was still out there on the schedule. You know, the Buckeyes had had seemingly just been 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 kicked out of the playoff conversation, you know, only to return you know to the conversation a few weeks later. But uh, it was it was an unusual time. So it's not surprising to hear from Nebraska players after this game that they felt Ohio State defensively and on offense was a much better team tonight than what they saw a year ago. But uh, still, you know, I, I saw Ohio State play several times last year in games that, that were not against Nebraska. And this this group, uh, you know, they're, they're just operating so much more efficiently. Um, I, I talked about the defense, and I, I, I do think the defense is probably the one thing or, or the single thing that is most different and most improved with this, this Ohio State team. But, um, you know, Fields, he brings a, a dynamic to Ohio State's offense that just was not there a year ago with, with Dwayne Haskins. I mean, as good as Dwayne Haskins was and, and – um, you know, as, as prolific as he was as the passer, uh, Fields' ability to, to escape and get out of the pocket and run for yards and convert third downs. Ohio State was, was, was so good tonight in this game at, at converting third downs. Whenever there was an opportunity for Nebraska to get off the field and seemingly get a bit of momentum in that first half before it got out of hand, uh, Fields got it done, either with his arm or, or, or more often with his legs. So, uh, you know, he brings an element that, that, that uh, also was not there for the Buckeyes a year ago. All right, Mitch Sherman, you, you heard it here first. Abandon all hope, rest of the Big Ten. They got a buzzsaw coming for you. I would say that Ohio State is a buzzsaw. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mitch. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Andy. I hope you're enjoying this show, and I hope you have subscribed, and I hope you have rated and reviewed it. We do love all the five-star reviews. We appreciate every single one of them. But if you want to hear more, you can listen to Friday's bonus show if you are a subscriber to The Athletic. Now, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, let's fix that. It's the best sports writing on earth. It costs a latte a month, basically. It's a great deal, and you can get 40% off your first year 
by subscribing now at theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. That's theathletic.com slash A-N-D-Y-S-T-A-P-L-E-S. You get those Friday shows. We give you the secret to happiness every single Friday. We also preview all the games, talk about all the news that's going on during the week. It's a great show, and you can only get it if you're subscribing to The Athletic. The other thing you get when you subscribe to The Athletic, the best sports writing on the planet. It doesn't matter if you're a college football fan, college basketball fan, NBA fan, NFL fan, Major League Baseball fan, international soccer fan, you name it. We cover everything. I just happen to think we cover college football the best. And I'm glad that you're listening to this. So subscribe, rate, review. And if you want more, join us at The Athletic. Theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. We go now to South Bend, Indiana, where Notre Dame bounced back from a loss at Georgia by beating Virginia in a game that Brian Kelly said was going to be a defining moment for his team. Well, we're going to define this moment with Pete Sampson, our Notre Dame beat writer. What's up, Pete? Hey, Andy. Um, yeah, I'm sort of trying to process what Notre Dame is and is not because it's sort of uh, their eye of the beholder team, I think, at the moment. They're good, right? We, yeah, we can agree on that. Definitely right? good. They're definitely good. It's a question of how good. And I think, you know, their their defensive line is very, very, very good. And they have some pieces that I, I think can keep them in the playoff conversation moving forward. I think they also have some pieces that need to get a heck of a lot better uh, for them to stick around through November. Well, we'll get to that playoff conversation in a second because I, I know that's the thing that everybody wants to talk about. And it's the thing that makes the the non-Notre Dame fans extremely mad when they hear Notre Dame mentioned in the playoff at all because, you know, how dare they not join a conference. But we'll, we'll get to that in a second. I want to talk about this game first because this was a, a very even game. Virginia's leading 17-14 at the half, and then all of a sudden two huge defensive plays for Notre Dame turn the whole thing around. And really it came down to Virginia couldn't run the ball, Notre Dame getting to Bryce Perkins almost every play, how good was that defense in the second half? It was excellent. I, I thought what was so interesting to me was like when you see a, such a huge turn in the second half, you assume, ah, halftime adjustments. That's that's what must have occurred. And to hear Brian Kelly talk about it and the players talk about it, it was, it was more, no, we just kept doing what we're doing because we knew we were going we to beat them up. And that's, that's I think, more of a uh, – a trait that I, I think you can repurpose week after week after week. If you're the more physical team, if you can beat somebody up on both lines of scrimmage, that's something that you can be consistent with. So I, I give Notre Dame a lot of credit for figuring out, okay, this is our strength. Did it show in the first half? Maybe not, but it will show eventually. And they were patient. And the, the word Brian Kelly used was stubborn, but he used it as a compliment <laughs> about how they just sort of beat Virginia up and they knew they eventually were going to get to Bryce Perkins. Well, and they just they just wore them down, and it, you're right. It is something they can do again. And you go back to last week; they they may have just met one of the few teams in the country that they can't do that to. That, that that's as good at, at that as they are. Yeah, I think that Notre Dame sort of viewed last week as they threw a lot of punches, and Georgia threw a lot of punches, but they didn't they didn't take more than they gave out. Um, they felt like they were the aggressor at Georgia, but I'm sure Georgia feels the same way. Today, that was not the story. Uh, Virginia knew they had been aggressed upon by Notre Dame, and after the game, they said, look, they, they just came out and they whipped us in the second half. 
that's you know Virginia is not a bad team. They're four and one. You know, have they looked great? No, but they have a great quarterback and they've got some nice pieces. And Notre for Notre Dame, I think also to be able to run the ball on them in the fourth quarter when that's obviously what they're going to do. We haven't seen. Notre Dame run the ball when a team is trying to stop the run and have success really since the, you know, the, the Quentin Nelson, Mike McGlinchey team of a couple of years ago. Uh, so I think that's, that's something that maybe you can package up and move forward with if they And if they have that in their bag offensively, this, this could still be a very dangerous team. Brian Kelly said after the game, he said there's there are teams he's had before at Notre Dame that would not have found a way to win the game today. How important was the defense being able to to make a couple of huge plays to to them getting a chance to enforce their will later on yeah i i definitely have covered a lot of Notre Dame teams that were not scrappy or persistent or stubborn or tough and you know for that to sort of just be part of the dna here now i think is a big deal notre dame since the program reboot after 2016 they don't they don't lose games anymore that they shouldn't lose. They don't get upset. Um, you know, the, the Miami, Stanford, Clemson, Georgia times two. Those are the games that they're losing now. I mean, they're big games, and, you know, they certainly have won some as well. But, you know, games where you're favored by 10 at home, Notre Dame always wins those now. And I, I've seen Notre Dame lose a ton of them in my time covering this program. So for that to sort of be eradicated – that's a big deal. That's that's something you can trust about Notre Dame, and I, you know I don't think Notre Dame fans or readers have sort of trusted Notre Dame in that way in quite some time. So that's that's something significant to me. While we're on the subject of Notre Dame beating teams, Notre Dame should beat every team remaining on the schedule is going to be an underdog to Notre Dame. It, it is possible that this team finishes eleven and one, beats the rest of its opponents. I don't know about handily because there's some decent teams still on the schedule, but the big question that everybody's going to ask is, can Notre Dame still make the playoff even though they went to Athens and lost? Can they be a playoff team at 11-1? and Can they? For sure. They can, but you needed North Carolina to convert that two-point conversion today. I mean, that's the kind of it stuff. It would have helped a lot, yes. Yeah, that's the stuff Notre Dame needs to make the playoff. It doesn't doesn't have a damn thing to do with Notre Dame anymore. Um, they, they need to win their games. At Michigan, I think, will be difficult regardless of what Michigan's going through right now. Uh, USC here, you know, they, they really should put it on USC, frankly. But, I mean, for Notre Dame to make it, you're, you're, at this point you're asking for multiple losses among Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Georgia. Um, really, I think if you're Notre Dame, you need Georgia to be the one that delivers the losses to – LSU, yeah. Alabama, SEC championships style types of games. And then you need you need Ohio State to, to pull a Purdue. And you need Oklahoma to lose to somebody that they shouldn't. Cause, and you, you might need that to happen twice to those teams, I think, for Notre Dame to get in the conversation. it's um, I think if for Notre Dame to make the playoff at 11-1, they, they would have been better off beating Georgia and losing to Virginia because then they would I, have I, something on the SEC, and they don't. They'd right have now. the quality win. You're right. I have a theory. I think I think the only way Notre Dame makes it 11-1 this year is Georgia is 13-0 and in the number one seed in the playoff. At I think that's point, the I only totally way agree. that happens. Yeah, I totally agree because that means Georgia's knocking out uh, or at least putting Alabama and LSU on even terms with Notre Dame. I don't necessarily think that will be enough for Notre Dame to get in. I mean, in 2015, Notre Dame had a chance to be 11-1 and if they had won at Stanford and they would have finished fifth. They would have missed out on the playoff at 11-1. and Oklahoma would have gone over them. 
I think Notre Dame, while they will protest that, obviously, they it's not going to be evidence that they should join a conference. So can we preemptively uh, cut off that storyline right now? Well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm I'm the one who always gives the history lesson when when somebody's like, hey, they should just join a conference. Here's the deal. I feel like there's a bargain that they've made here with the playoff. And that bargain is you don't have to join a conference, but you've probably got to be 12 and 0 to make the playoff. And it seems like Jack Swarbrick and Brian Kelly are pretty cool with that. I totally agree. I, I think that's somewhat lost uh, to people who are not around Notre Dame and, and talking to Swarbrick and Kelly and just other people here that that's, that's the deal Notre Dame is going to make with the playoff. They're fine with that. When the playoff expands, it will be a better deal than it is right now. But until that happens, 12-0, and 0, you're in for sure. 11-1, and 1, uh, we'll see. It depends on everybody else. And I think Notre Dame is pretty much okay with that. That's, that's just sort of the world they live in there, and they can accept that. So it, it's been now three years since that horrible season that, that caused the reboot you just mentioned. Are you surprised at how consistent they've been able to become after that? I mean, because it was, it was – I can't remember a program changing more without firing its head coach than, than what Notre Dame did between 2016 and 2017. But the results seem to speak for themselves. I am still surprised. You know, I, I've, I've covered every game since – every game during, and I cannot believe that Notre Dame has, has turned into a consistent winner the way that it has. I mean, they, they've found the success that they have in some ways been searching for since Lou Holtz was the coach here, where they, they are a team that you know are going to win almost every weekend, and then they'll play in some big games and take their shots. But I, I give Brian Kelly a ton of credit. Who coaches themselves off the hot seat ever? I mean, that never happens in major <laughs> Hardly ever football. happens. You're right. Uh, well, to, you're going to see Clay Helton in a couple of weeks, and yeah. he's not doing that. No, it's not going well for him at all. You know, it's like Gus Malzahn is permanently on the hot seat. Brian Kelly is off. Like, Oh, that, that, that's Auburn. Auburn doesn't yeah, count. Fair point. The Auburn coach is always on the hot seat or is always getting an extension. There are, there are no – there's no gray area. You're yeah. either getting extended for 20 years or you're on the hot seat. It just, But it's just strange to me that not only has Brian Kelly got himself off the hot seat, like if they lost to USC, he wouldn't suddenly be back on. Like he has, he has restored some benefit of the doubt, which I never thought would happen after 2016. So I, I give him a ton of credit for figuring out, all right, this is broken and I need to tear this thing down. And sort of my previous experience as a head coach is not good enough. I got to, I got to go find the best people even if I've never worked with them before. And he did. And, you know, lo and behold, you got Chip Long, Clark Lee as your coordinators. Their strength program is so much better. The recruiting is in good shape. Um, this is it's, – it's not a turnaround that I expected to see coming after 2016. I don't, I don't think anyone around here honestly would tell you that, hey, if you said they were going to go 10-3, and 12-1, and 1, and this season's probably going to be 10-2, and 2, that they would win 32 games in three years. I mean, forget it. They hadn't, they hadn't won 10 games back-to-back -back years since 92-93. And they to do that the last two years after that four and eight, it's it's amazing. Full credit to Brian Kelly for that. Now, because this is college football, and I can't possibly let you have a nice positive answer without then throwing something controversial in there. How long can they keep Chip, Chip Long and Clark Lee? And I realize Clark Lee replaced Mike Elko, so they've already they've already replaced one coordinator from that reboot and done it very well. But these are two young guys that are that are really good at their jobs. How much longer till their head coaches? 
they're young guys. If they're good at their job, they're in their 30s. So I, I don't think either of them are in a hurry to get out of here. In fact, I know that. I know neither of them are, want to leave unless it's for a head coaching job. So it's you're not going to run into an Elko situation where you get you know a, a boatload of cash to go to A&M. Clark Lee, you know, if Vanderbilt opens where he's an alum, maybe, you know, Chip Long, I'm thinking that's going to have to be more like a, an Arkansas, Illinois type of situation. I mean, I've, I've you, you asked I don't know how to break this to you, Pete, but those jobs are open. <laughs> that may happen. <laughs> I just, I, I don't, they're not going to go to a place where it's Marshall or uh, Louisiana Tech. I think that they're in a position now where they're, they're willing and happy to wait for a good job to come open at a Power Five conference, and those are those are hard to get. It may be a few more years down the road before that happens, and Notre Dame would be thrilled if it did. Well, that would be great news for Notre Dame. Pete, thank you so much. Can't wait to see what happens next because whatever Notre Dame does, especially if they keep winning, will just make everybody mad. And I love how mad Notre Dame makes people. Well, I know everyone around here is cannot wait to see what they do to Brian Van Gorder's defense uh, of Bowling Green next week. So, yeah, there, there is actually some intrigue from a game that probably wouldn't have any on paper. Who, who does Brian Van Gorder dirtier? Notre Dame this year, Paul Johnson last year. I think at least Brian Kelly is a little bit of an ally, but I, I'm just the venom in the stands. It's just going to be. I mean, they're they're going to be going. <laughs> the the fans I think will force Chip Long to call passing plays up 45 points in the third quarter. So, it's uh, it'll be an interesting scene here next week for that. And you were wondering why you were going to need to watch Notre Dame Bowling Green. Now you know, Pete Sampson, you are the best. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andy. That's it from what I think is probably going to wind up being the least eventful college football weekend of the season. I guarantee you it gets weirder from here. It's a 14-week calendar. We knew there were going to be some weeks like this. But trust me, big games coming up. Auburn, Florida. Ohio State has to play Michigan State's defense. Does that mean that Justin Fields and company will finally get slowed down? We're going to get answers to these questions. It's going to be a fun week. And come back on Friday for that bonus show. We will preview it all and give you the secret to happiness. But only if you subscribe to The Athletic. So subscribe at theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. That's theathletic.com slash A-N-D-Y. S-T-A-P-L-E-S.